Oh, you didn't think we'd talk about Duverger's law yeah, on I, this podcast? I did not. I did not have that. That's something we were going to talk about. Ranked choice voting forever. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is November 3rd, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Um, I don't know. It's a pretty chill day. You know, just kind of relaxing. It's awesome. I, I don't think anything's happening today. No, no. It's a slow, slow day. And from Los Angeles, 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah, Neil. Happy Election Day. Oh, that's what's happening. Oh. Yeah, there's a little election going on. <laughs> Not a big deal. I- I haven't heard that much about it. Big deal. (laughs) Not many implications. No, so that's nice. Um, Well, so it's been a week since the Los Angeles Dodgers won World Series Game Six. Uh, You know, that's the tricky thing when when sporting events happen on Tuesday night. It's like, oh, well, there's going to be a whole week before we get to talk about it. Um, But Jeff, that means that you won our MLB draft by using your number one pick on the best team in the league. Congratulations. I think I also said Dodgers and six at the beginning of the I, series. too. I, I think you did. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, I don't, don't, I don't not remember you saying that. So people, people don't remember these, these accurate pr- predictions I made. <laughs> well, it's confusing when you take chalk, you know, I know like, it was weird. You should have traded me that pick Jeff. <laughs> well, well, good work with that. Also, we, we need to get this on the record was Tampa Bay manager Kevin Cash right or wrong to pull Blake Snell in the sixth inning of game six? I believe I said at one point something along the lines are the Rays will be fine as long as they don't bring Nick Anderson. Yes, (laughs) you did. That was hilarious. You got it. You got it exactly right. I mean, he had given up, what was it, eight straight games? He had given up at least one run and they were like, well, this guy's pitching a gem, but I don't know. Nick's got that streak. Probably could go for an earned run right about now. <laughs> yeah, very true. Neil was the was the decision though correct? The the despite who, who Cash brought in, what was the what were the was the decision a good one? No, I mean I didn't hate it. I could see the arguments both ways, and I feel like people wringing their hands over it uh, were just trying to kind of find controversy as much as anything. It was like, yeah, it was rolling whatever that means. Uh, and he had struck out, you know, the, the, the guys that he was about to face, but also Mookie Betts is a righty and probably the best player in baseball facing a lefty that was really hitting sort of the, the limit to which he had pitched in a start during the, the regular season. I don't think he had gone deeper into a game like that since like the middle midsummer of 2019. So I don't know. I think a lot of the reactions to it were people that wish that we were in the era of like Nolan Ryan or Bob Gibson or somebody like that. And was like, I can't believe that you would pull a starter that early into a game uh, and not realizing like they pretty much always pull Blake Snell at that stage of a game and I could see the wisdom and like, just let him see what he's got, let him finish, you know, and uh, you shouldn't let a Austin Barnes single (laughs) be the, the cue to hook someone from a game. But also like, if you looked at his, you know, vital numbers, like his miles per hour and his fastball were ticking down a little bit. You could make the case. I guess what I'm trying to say is there was a case to be made and people were freaking out about it. And let's not forget the Dodgers do this kind of thing all the time and it just didn't blow up on them. And so we didn't have any kind of, you know, great controversy around them. Yeah, I know it's it. it, Yeah, it was a bummer that the World Series had to end like that because it was a really fun World Series, I think, for, I think all of us thought that. I mean, the weekend games were so wild and really interesting. And then to end on that note was just sort of a thud back to the reality. After of- 58 straight days also, that was, I think, the was weirdest strange. part of all. Oh, it was just yeah. like, what? Yeah. You, 58 straight days and then now, I don't know. But yeah. that's, that's the way things are. Anyway, all right. Well, on today's show, we, like all of you, are keenly aware that there is an election happening here in these United States. If you are listening to this on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, and you are eligible to vote, but you have not voted yet, 
let us be the soundtrack to you getting yourself on over to your polling place and casting your ballot. So first, we're going to check in on our football survivor pool, and we'll talk a little bit about week eight in the NFL and and maybe certain NFC North teams that got a win, you know, just, just for instance. But then we wanted to take today to discuss the intersection of sports and politics. Specifically, we want to look at how sports leagues and players and owners engage in political activity and activism. So we're going to talk a little bit about the politics of sports, about how money from sports affects our political system. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. So this was an interesting week for our NFL survivor pool. (laughs) Neil's Titans fell to the Bengals. Come on, Titans. Joe Burrow might be good at football. I don't know. That was a fun game. It's good. Uh, The Titans have a terrible defense. How did that happen? Um, Yeah, right. I I seem to remember them going to the AFC Championship with a great defense, but something has changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I won my game by which i mean the vikings beat the packers who were my pick so i lost the game (laughs) and i have never been happier to lose a point on the other hand the jets lost to the chiefs which means jeff gained a point on both me and neil the score now stands at sarah and neil with five points each jeff with four congrats jeff for for, for closing the gap Big week. Yeah. Jets can't can't even cover 20 point spread. They're terrible. Yeah, they're not they're not great. Um (laughs) I think we've established that. Can we just just ban them from this game? No, absolutely not. Did Um, we design this game just to humiliate me? This was if it was, it was (laughs) diabolical and I respected. Um, I don't think we even could have. I think that just happened on its own. Sorry. I also didn't just didn't know you identified that emotionally, I know. you know, strongly with the Jets. Right now, if we were talking about Michigan, that'd be a whole different thing. But this oh, is just the Jets. Sarah. I'm sorry. Sarah. That was mean. That was mean. I'm sorry. That was. Mean. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm worried. I'm worried. You want to know what I'm worried about? That Trevor Lawrence is going to do the exact same thing that Peyton Manning did to the Jets, which is <laughs> realize the Jets are going to get the number one pick. The last time in the the only time, and at least in my lifetime, we had the number one pick. He was supposed to come out, and he's like, "Ooh, I'm actually going to stay another year at Tennessee." Um, <laughs> coincidence? Yeah. Um, Maybe they'll draft like a fullback. <laughs> that that would be amazing. All right. Well, so this week in the Survivor Pool, the pick order is Neil, Sarah, Jeff. Neil, who you got with your first pick? Oh, gosh. There are not great options this no. week either. Uh, it's it's kind of a rough week. I Have I picked the Texans yet? Oh, I hate this. Oh, this is terrible. Why, you, see, can I just, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, uh, you know, backseat drive your pick here, but you do have the Chiefs, which is okay. <laughs> just saying that. Well, I also have the Steelers. Uh, you know what? I, I'm going to, you, you can book this. I'm going to take Pittsburgh on the road but against dallas yeah um ugh, that was um gonna be my pick I, it's funny I, oh, it, i'm sorry no it's okay uh I'm you can, you're allowed to do that um the the three teams i have listed as my possible picks we all just discussed so <laughs> um i think that i am gonna take the texans over the jaguars i think that's i think this is my time to to roll with houston we sure. kind of traded picks there. Yeah, we did. I know. <laughs> I thought that you were going to take the Texans, but it's it's okay. It's okay. I like this pick. I wanted to because Jake Luton is yeah. making his first start for the illustrious Jacksonville Jaguars. Yeah. I feel like that's going to be a disaster. It seems like it should. We'll we'll see what actually happens, I guess. All right, Jeff, who you got? I will see. I can't. I can't oh. think. Yeah. You can change. You can still change. No, I kind of screwed you over there. That's kind of fun. Yay. So I can't take the Chiefs and I, I can't take the Patriots. So this is a this is a uh hot takedown survivor pool first, and by default, no one will be playing against the Jets, which is remarkable. So I'm gonna take I'm gonna ooh. It's the Patriots, though. I wanted to pick against the Jets. I really did, but then I was like, uh Patriots. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're not good. But by that same logic. Uh, I mean, they already handed me one of my losses. Uh, when else are you going to take them? Um, Good point. Well, they played the Jets again for the record, so you could probably take them then. <laughs> <laughs> Just I'm hold on. 
I'm gonna take the I'm gonna take the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Who are they playing? They're playing the Saints. Wow. Um, that seems risky. Did you watch last night's game? I did, and uh, I I think that was kind of the uh, ooh, short rest though. I don't like that, but I do think um they that was not their best performance and they kind of got it out of the system whereas this division game I, I don't think this saints team is that good yeah um and i think the bucks having lost to them already are not going to lose to them again i always like teams that are playing a division team the second time and they've lost the first one that first were uh the first week where brady was clearly off so i think they're going to come out strong so we're just about halfway through the season, um, right about at the halfway mark. What has stood out to you guys, and why is it Dalvin Cook? No. <laughs> he did stand out. He stood out. And I think he pretty close to single-handedly uh, had more points than my entire team. So that was <laughs> fun. Yeah. Uh, scored a touchdown on each of their four first four drives that's pretty cool that hadn't happened in a while the the last uh viking to score four touchdowns sarah yes Ahmad Rashad. i do Ahmad Rashad. wow yeah that's I cool that is a cool stat um, yeah. shout out to N- uh, nba inside stuff <laughs> um wh- what other teams have have stood out to you guys so far uh halfway through it's it seems like a, it's a weird season where we don't really have a a super clear favorite yeah, I mean, I think the Chiefs are still the favorite, deservedly so. I, I think um, Baltimore clearly I, – I actually really thought Baltimore was going to win that game Sunday, and it, it was a great game. I mean, it's always a great game with those teams. But um, it, clearly Lamar Jackson is the, – the book is out on him. And in particular, I think teams that can, you know, add pressure to the quarterback and, and can put him in tough decisions, it, it's effective. I mean, he's – turning into the quarterback who is great against the terrible teams and not good against the good teams, um, as as I've said before. So I, I think Baltimore, um, I was a little surprised because they, they do have a great record um, off the bye. And I actually didn't think Pittsburgh was that good. I think Pittsburgh had looked shaky. I think their offense, I think Roethlisberger is kind of, you know, not the same. And it's a lot of dink and dunk and obviously a great defense. But um, they hadn't really beaten anyone. So I, I was surprised by that. So I, I think it's I, I personally have to change my assessment of the undefeated Steelers. Um, but, you know, it, it generally feels like every team is not as good as we think or as bad as we think, uh, with the exception of the Jets. Um, for <laughs> Green Bay clearly has issues. They're not, you know, the perfect, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers is back with, with that defense. I mean, they, they, they're, they're definitely beatable, I think. San Francisco is kind of a mess, and that's a team that was in the Super Bowl. Seattle, um, the defense looked better this week, uh, but not that much better, especially once Jimmy G was gone. So I think yeah, that was weird. Wow, Russ, Russ Wilson is amazing. Um, the team has issues, and up and down. Tampa Bay looked great, and they looked really shaky, and probably should have lost the Giants um, <laughs> last night. So. So, yeah, I will say the team that surprises me the most is the Dolphins. I, I mean, their defense looks legit, and yeah. I am I am just shocked by this. I'm also a little surprised by the team I just picked, the Steelers. I mean, we knew they would probably be, like, good because they're generally almost always at least relatively decent, and they were even 500 last year with a procession of really – mediocre quarterbacks and so getting Roethlisberger back but you know we didn't know how much he would still have left on his arm uh and and you know what kind of performance that offense would deliver and whether their defense would regress and as it turns out their defense didn't really regress that much unlike you know say the Patriots who also had a probably equally good defense last year uh and now they're doing better at least on offense and they're seven and oh you know it's very possible that they could be undefeated you know through 10 games or something looking forward to maybe that next game against Baltimore and then who knows that's uh that's a team that you know I thought would be among the broad group of pretty good teams but not necessarily the lone remaining undefeated team uh, and sort of depending on how you look at it one of the Super Bowl front runners I mean I still think the Chiefs 
should be given the benefit of the doubt. And it's kind of weird how we've all sort of like, maybe it's just because they're not the shiny new thing. And they played worse and Mahomes doesn't look quite as good. But like, I don't know, it's the Chiefs, man. Yeah, and they're they're easily ahead in our model. They're, you know, 10 percentage points or something like that ahead of any other team at, in Super Bowl title odds. But it is, I think their loss people were like, oh, that's interesting because <laughs> it wasn't really a close loss either. Seattle, on the other hand, they really should have won the game. They lost to Arizona. They sort of just, you know, let it slip away at the end. And so I, I don't know. Seattle has still, they're one of those teams that's really hard to pin down. I mean, Russell Wilson is super good. The defense is like, are they going to, how are they going to, how are they going to play from week to week? It's a little bit, it, that's, it's just not very consistent. Um, All right. Well, let's take a break for a second. The NFL is sure to come up again when we talk about sports and political donations in just a second. But first, we have an exciting message from a very important member of the 538 team. Hey, folks, it's me, 5e Fox. Two out of three hot takedown hosts might still be undecided about yours truly being the mascot for great data journalism, but the people have spoken. Specifically, the people have asked to open up our online store again. So we did it. We have a brand new design in the 538 store right now featuring me, yours truly, 5e Fox, as well as an updated 5e calculator design with the digits 538 on the calculator screen. <coughs> um, uh, in all seriousness... Uh, there's a great new design of 5e Fox beloved by at least a plurality of 538 staffers in our store right now, as well as an updated 5e calculator design and by popular request, smaller designs with 5e on the left chest are available in zip hoodies, t-shirts, crew neck sweatshirts, and pullover hoodies. If you head over to 538.com slash store and you place your order by Friday, November 5th, you will receive that order between the 23rd and the 30th of November. So the 538 store back open, new and improved designs. So go check out all of our merch at 538.com slash store. That's the letters 538.com slash store. Wow, that was so nice of Five V to to stop by Hot Takedown for us. I know, wasn't that weird? Wasn't yeah, it, it was. It I wonder was weird if, how he was here, yeah. and then like he left, and I came that in. That is that is super weird. Um, we'll have to ask Five V to come back to read more ads for us later. As part of the run-up to the election, 538 and ESPN collaborated on a series that looked into the political contributions of more than 160 team owners and commissioners across American sports leagues. In the past six years that cover the past three election cycles, the presidential years of 2016 and 2020, and the midterms of 2018, 74 of those owners contributed to Republican campaigns, 48 to Democratic campaigns, and the remaining 38 to a mix of both. 40 team owners contributed at least $100,000 to Republican causes in that time frame, compared with 23 owners who gave the same amount to Democratic causes. That the very rich people who own sports teams favor Republican causes isn't too surprising. But on ESPN's The Jump, former NBA player Kendrick Perkins talked about the nuance of judging owners one way or another based on their political contributions. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me playing 14 years and, and playing mm -hmm. for the Boston Celtics and the Oklahoma City Thunder in particular, those owners are great. They're great individuals. I'm looking at uh, Wick Grosbeck, yeah. Steve Pagliuga, James Cash, Clay Blint, uh, Bennett. They have great hearts. I talk to these guys like, you know, once a week or twice a week on the telephone. They're, they're great mm -hmm. friends of mine. And it's a sticky situation, and it's hard to judge any person on who they vote for or why they're voting for a certain party. Um, I mean, because it's confusing. I mean, us watching, and not to get in the political state, but watching the presidential debate, uh, it confused me well, to the point where it was like, okay, I want to mm -hmm. vote this way, I want to vote this way, but I'm confused right now. So I don't look at them any certain type of way because I know that they have a harder goal. I know that the Boston franchise in particular, yeah. the ownership group, are doing a lot of things in the community, and they have a lot of things uh, that they plan on doing in the near future that's going to benefit and back the players uh, tremendously. So 
you know, I'm looking at this situation and I just know that hopefully they're doing the right things for the right reasons. So I can't judge anybody whether they vote Republican or Democratic, long as their heart is in the right place when it comes down to in social justice and equality in America. So let's start with this. On this very podcast, we have talked about the tension between the political donations of certain team owners and the will to tackle social justice issues. But let's dig in a little more on what kinds of donations we're really talking about. Neil, what do we know about the specifics of these political contributions? Are there, are there trends in the ways that most owners behave? Yeah, I thought uh, in in particular, there's a fascinating story by Kevin Arnovitz at ESPN that was part of the series that we, uh, that, uh, we collaborated with them on that talked about the three different types of political donors among uh, sports owners. So he identified the business giver, which I found endlessly interesting. This is someone who gives uh, pretty much strictly with business interests in mind and will give to both parties. He'll give to, to uh, two, two candidates who are running against each other, you know, one person that beat another person he'll have given uh, to, to them in consecutive cycles. Uh, and that's actually kind of common, uh, especially among if, if you're looking at um, owners that give to both parties. It doesn't even seem to break along ideological lines. Now, at the other end of the spectrum from that are the ideological givers uh, who are basically your often Republican kind of, you know, uh, ideologue types that uh, own a team and they give money to, uh, you know, Republican PACs. And, and, you know, there's there's limits to the amount that they can give to candidates, which is also interesting because often and we'll talk about this uh, later, that, that they'll sort of disguise their their giving tendencies by giving to political action committees that then filter the money to candidates without it actually being attached. But among the ones that put their names out there, uh, you know, it can be along these ideological lines. And there are some liberal uh, owners also um, uh, that, that give uh, to, to Democratic candidates. Uh, but it tends to break a little bit more toward the Republican side. And then there's also the personal giver, uh, which really it's not ideological either. Uh, it, it's just about having connections with political figures and, you know, the the archetypal like, hey, here's a picture of me and this <laughs> senator framed on my wall. And so it's about sort of these these webs of connections and personal relationships that they have with politicians. Um, but it, that was eye opening to me because, yes, the ideological giver is certainly a type of owner. Uh, and that's, I think, what I had in my head when I kind of went into this um, was just thinking like, OK, that, you know, Republican owners, you know, are going to kind of blindly give to Republican politicians. But it's actually a lot more complex than that. And a lot of it really does have to do with business and has to do with, you know, who can uh, who can do the best uh, for for the particular um, field that you're you're kind of making your money outside of basketball or outside of, you know, the sport in. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating and wasn't something that I had really thought about at all. Um, you know, you hear sometimes of, of, of donations going to both, um, major candidates in a major race, like, um, like the presidential election. And you think, well, those donors are like hedging their bets to have influence with whoever wins, but it's even more specific than that, where it can really be about someone's action that, you know, the industry, their, their personal business. Um, so, so Kendrick Perkins is saying that party affiliation doesn't necessarily preclude a commitment to social justice and equality issues. And I, I mean, I think that's, that's gotta be true from a broad view, but Jeff, how does that play out practically? Yeah. I mean, it's true in the sense that, uh, party affiliation doesn't preclude, uh, your stance on, um, global warming and the environment. I mean, it, there, there aren't like these party affiliations and party platforms change, but the fact of the matter is, I think it, it's wrong in the sense that this party, particularly under this administration is actively working against a lot of these social um, injustice initiatives. I mean, you look at just what they've been doing in the last couple of weeks, you know, attacking diversity training, both, you know, under the framework that they're politically correct and attacking it both, you know, 
in corporations and in academia. And, and, and they're actively sort of working against a lot of these causes that um, are done to spread awareness and to um, promote change um, against institutionalized racism. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's one party that is not that interested in these um initiatives and that's the republican party so yes it's true it doesn't preclude anything but in practice it it's not quite accurate it's a little i think utopian of of him to say i think what was what was striking what's striking for me in this is that there's a there's different <laughs> this is going to sound kind of stupid like obviously like Real, extremely wealthy people live in a slightly different world than people who are not extremely wealthy. But I found it interesting that that they live in a different world politically as well. When you have a ton of money, what's happening in politics affects you completely differently. You're not worried about your rights being legislated away because you can you can buy your rights. You know, <laughs> when we talk about reproductive rights, uh, you know the right to abortion, that isn't going to affect very wealthy people. No matter what the Supreme Court decides, no matter what laws are enacted, they will be able to do what they want because they have the money to do what they want. And so politics is almost just about which taxation policies you prefer. And it's not about which rights are you protecting or finding important. Um, and so I think that 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 is more of the disconnect between the with these extremely wealthy owners that they're not affected by politics in the same way that even a lot of their players are i mean obviously you know the superstar players make a lot of money but the rank and file players don't and and are and those players are more connected to the the realities of everyday americans they're very few billionaires. They're right. pretty unusual. Even among rich people, they're unusual. And these happen to be a lot of these people we're talking about. The people who can afford a sports team usually falls into that bucket. But um, so they are they are the only they're just part of this small minority that is affected by these decisions. And in terms of their net worth and their wealth these decisions in the tax code will make have huge ramifications in the amount of money um, they will take in in any given year. Um, so obviously, you know, their political agendas are going to be skewed by that. And that's kind of the tightrope that, I mean, we've talked about often on the show about, um, you know, lining up with what is a popular movement uh, and, and trying to kind of align yourself with where what will maximize your fans basically, or minimize the number of fans that you alienate. Uh, and I think that that also leads to how, you know, you have this disconnect between the, the front facing stance of a team and then the donations behind the scenes of the, um, the owner. But I think it, it, it makes a lot more sense when you just think of they're trying to do what they think is in their best interest in each particular case. Everybody's doing it, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I think it's, I mean, I understand where Kendrick Perkins is coming from that, you know, these, these owners that he knows personally are good guys and care about the people around them and, and, and whatever. And that's obviously important. I mean, it's good, but there are what the players wanted when they, when they went on strike and just in general is a bigger push, a bigger commitment you know, toward, toward eliminating some of the societal problems we have. And that I think can be maybe divorced from your personal company taxation, but maybe not right now. Um, and that's something that owners are going to have to to keep in mind if they want to keep the fans that want to see more for them. And if they want to keep the players that, that want them to make a bigger commitment toward, you know, social justice. Well, this is why Duverger's law and the two-party system sucks so much, you know, because you have to kind of basically, if you want lower taxes as an owner, you have to kind of package yourself with Donald Trump now. And there's probably a lot of owners that are like, I don't want to be involved with that, uh, especially not publicly. But, you know, I also don't want to pay more taxes. But the fact that, you know, we sort of have to choose between two you know, prepackaged sets of very sweeping different ideologies uh, when voting is, uh, you know, forces you into those decisions, I think. Yeah. 
I think that's a that's a good point. I, I didn't think we were going to go into a multi-party system. Discussion, oh, you didn't think we talk it. about Duverger's law yeah, on I, this podcast? I did not. I did not have that. That's something we were going to talk about today. Well, Neil, what did... Ranked choice voting forever. <laughs> no, but, uh, look, I, I, I think, you know, it, it is kind of a cop-out to say it's a case-by-case basis and everyone's different but I, I think it actually is true when when you have a case of a billionaire you like you take someone like dan gilbert who owns the Cavs. you know he's a huge republican donor but at the same time he, he pours billions of dollars into rebuilding detroit um you know which is like his pet cause is to you know get rid of the blight in that city and and, and to, to get it back on its feet um so it's complicated. You can't just categorically write off someone just because of their donations, especially when they have that much money. And, and where else is the money going? You know, what else are they donating to? I'm not on here defending Dan Gilbert. <laughs> Another interesting turn today. Um, no, for sure. And I, I think, I think it would be, I think a lot of um, owners would love for that, to, for there to be more of a, a clear divide there where it's, you know, yes, I'm donating, to these things because of my business, but I'm also very invested in the community. I'm, I think we might be hurtling toward a place where that you can't separate it anymore. You know, if racism were not a problem in a completely alternative timeline, then yeah, then I think we'd be having a much different conversation about our politics. And it would be more about the fundamental differences between in political theory between Republicans and Democrats and not does your party believe that, you know, I have a right to exist? I mean, that's a little simplistic, but I, I do think there's there's this problem right now where in the, the free market setup we have in sports, owners are going to have to worry about that more because their customers aren't going to accept where where they're at with their politics, which is a very tricky situation. Neil, what did our research with ESPN find in terms of how leagues stack up politically? Do do the owners line up at all with fans' ideology or not so much? Uh, not really. I mean, the one exception is the WNBA. They were the only league that we looked at where uh, more money went to Democrats than to Republicans. And in fact, uh, the, the majority of the money that was given to Republicans actually came from Kelly Loeffler. Yeah. Uh, and and she, I think it was 60% of the, the donations um, coming from Republican owners. And of course, she's a Republican politician herself. So it sort of skews things there. I think if you took her out, the, the gap would be even larger. But for the other leagues, it really is kind of a landslide margin between the amount given to Republicans and the amount given to Democrats. Not to say that they don't give any to Democrats, but like MLB, for instance, they were the most active donating uh, league uh, and they gave 20 million, uh, a little over 20 million. Five million of that went to Democrats and 15 million of that went to Republicans. And uh, the NBA was even more shocking of the 11 million uh, that they donated across all parties. Eight million went to Republicans and only 2.6 million went to Democrats. So um, I, th I think that that is a little bit surprising. That NBA result was the one that, that jumped out to me. But really, if you look across the board, I mean, it is um, heavily to Republicans. And again, I think that that goes back to the taxation stuff and just the the fact that uh, you don't get to own uh, one of these pro sports teams without, you know, caring about taxes yeah. and trying to minimize the amount you spend on that and caring about regulation and trying to minimize that. I mean, a lot of the like non-Trumpian conservative uh, tent poles, I, I think, line up a lot more with, you know, the types of people that own pro sports teams than than not. Uh, and so I think that that explains it. But it is, you know, like we were just talking about, it's interesting that um, that the NBA would have such a stark split uh, compared with how they kind of present themselves uh, uh, as a league or, you know, where their fans are at and where their players are at uh, politically. I, I was shocked by that Charles Johnson number. Yeah. Unless I'm reading this wrong, he gave $11 million to the Republican Party. Yeah. And... The second closest owner is Dan Devos, Devos, uh, the magic owner whose sister or sister-in-law is in the cabinet. <laughs> yeah. <of the> current <laughs> administration um, was was two point two million. I mean, that huge difference, um, especially 
you know, where his team plays, which is, you know, literally Nancy Pelosi's district. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seemed a little strange, at least. Um, I mean, it pops off the page. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, Giants owner Charles Johnson, his his contributions made up 32.1 percent of all Republican contributions, which is a, a, a lot. <laughs> it's a pretty a pretty huge share. And I wondered on the Charles Johnson thing, um, how much of that is like he just gives without caring about how what whether his name is attached to it or not. Uh, whereas there was another interesting story. Uh, I forget who wrote it in the ESPN series. Maybe it was Baxter Holmes about the the rise of super PACs basically giving owners cover to be able to avoid putting their name on particular donates donations that go to particular candidates and the ability to do that now is far greater than it was in the past. So I think that probably some of, you know, we did our best uh, uh, in, in reporting this out and gathering this data of trying to get like a complete record, but there are inherent uh, blind spots in this because a lot of these guys and, and women also as owners of these teams, they're not, putting their names on these they're making donations to super PACs and uh and, and non-profits and kind of other ways that they can get around having to publicly have a record of it maybe charles johnson is just bad at concealing you know <laughs> uh, like if we knew how much some of these other yeah. people were putting out there maybe it makes charles johnson look small time we just don't know and i think that that's a this speaks to kind of a larger problem in all of politics and political donations is that now there are ways that you can kind of be disconnected. If we've decided that political money can be construed as speech, mm. it's kind of interesting that we also have decided that you don't actually have to be connected to your own speech, quote unquote, that you're kind of putting out there. Um, but that stood out to me because Charles Johnson, he's such an outlier, 11 million and the next highest is 2.3 million. I'm like, some of these other people got to be donating that much. And they're just not, you know, doing it publicly. Maybe Charles Johnson is like, you know, I have a pretty, uh, um, generic name. No one's going to realize this is the same Charles Johnson. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, maybe they think it's former Florida Marlins catcher Charles. Exactly. Johnson. Exactly. Maybe, they do. maybe people think that. <laughs> um, well, if, if people want to um, kind of explore this data, we have a big long table of all the owners um, and which uh, parties they've donated and how much they've donated um, on the website in this in this very interesting story. So. Kind of as the takeaway here, what what do you guys think the political lessons have been for American sports leagues over the past four years? Have the incentives for them changed or the pressures they're under changed at all? Or would we be would we be talking a lot less about politics and sports if not for the pandemic? Has that kind of changed the dynamic? I mean, it probably has to some extent, but we were talking a lot about politics and sports well before we had ever even heard of COVID-19, you know, and I think Trump has a lot to do with that. You know, he set the tone pretty early with his comments about Kaepernick and kind of, you know, bringing the the debate like straight to the NFL and kind of putting them on blast. But you have to think that if Trump is not elected and it's a Hillary Clinton uh, administration, it doesn't really ramp up as much. I don't think, you know, it's not part of the conversation and certainly not as in much as, as much of an acrimonious way. Uh, and so I think the, the Trump era, because it is so like, you, you have to take sides now, you know, there is no middle ground and sports always relished being in that middle ground. Yeah, I agree. I mean, everything's just heightened. Uh, any partisan difference in this environment has been heightened. And I, I think that's bled over into, you know, really all walks of life um, and sports has not been spared. What happens with sports? Will sports stay politicized? I mean, is there a turning back from where we've been? I wonder. That's the million dollar question. Yeah. I don't think athletes are going to suddenly be like, oh, okay. I don't want to have a political voice anymore. I do think there are, Athletes who have found their voice here and it's been, you know, good for them. They ha they feel good about it. They feel good personally about um, having a bigger stance in society than maybe previous athletes of previous generations have. 
I think I, I think actually some of these changes will stick, and, and part of that is obviously the political climate and and the the way this administration has has sort of heightened our differences as we've you know discussed. But I think our, I think social media is a huge factor here, and that I think athletes know are now keenly aware of their power, and that you know if they're they want to they want change. They have a platform to do it. And every athlete has that and they will be heard. And I think the days of, uh, you know, stick to sports and Republicans buy shoes also are, are probably gone to a certain extent. Um, and that's for the better. Um, and, and I think, you know, you know, part of that is the climate, but part of that's just, you know, technology and, and, and the fact that anyone can have a voice, um, that can be heard. And that might I mean, that might be uh, one of the ways that the pandemic does play into it, though, is that we did see because the owners, you know, for whatever reason, uh, whether they're fully telling the truth about their books or not through this, they have kind of experienced a little bit more financial uh, pressure than they're used to. They're they're expecting these franchises to kind of always appreciate in value and be these cash machines, basically. and, And it's been reduced this year. And so the the players, I think, realized that they had a lot more leverage to be able to take away the one thing that the owners really wanted, which was to finish these seasons at all costs, deliver the championships to the networks at all costs. And you're seeing it even now with the NBA, where they're like, if we don't start the season before Christmas and get the, the ratings from that, we could be down a lot more money. Uh, and, and so I think the players are kind of recognizing they have a lot of leverage in, in the sense that they've proven now that they can just say, like, we're not playing. And you have a lot more to lose from this than we do. And so you're going to have to listen to us. And that is very different than we've seen in the past. And I think that that does reshape things. And it's specifically in the context of the pandemic. It's interesting on the other side, too, just how much attention, you know, Jack Nicklaus got and how much attention Brett Favre got for coming out um, and endorsing Trump. I could say attention, but I could also say backlash. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if it'll, you know, the door will swing both ways and it won't just, you know, there will be athletes who will be more outspoken, you know, for other causes, other political parties. And maybe that's okay. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that Jack Nicholas or Brett Favre would would endorse Trump, and that is their right to do so. Um, but I also don't want to hear it from the other side that you know LeBron should shut up and dribble. That those days are over. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> we we live our lives, our full lives, no matter where we are, what we're doing, and um, and we should not ever expect anyone else to not understand or comment on the reality of our political situation. Um, It will be very interesting to see what happens after the election is over. If there's maybe a little less um, anger about it um, and we can come into some sort of equilibrium on, um, on politics and sports. I think there's only one result that, that leads to that. I think that's probably true. Um, Well, it's, you know, we, we should know soon, maybe. Let's leave this discussion here for now. We'll be back in a moment for a rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. So after the sports strikes of the summer following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, athletes were very vocal in pushing their team owners to open up arenas, stadiums, and ballparks for use as polling places. We were curious about how that would end up working. So 538 elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich looked up every venue for the NBA, WNBA, NFL, NHL and MLB to determine whether the facility was being used as a polling place for this election. Nathaniel found 39 venues serving as polling sites either during early voting or on election day today. The breakdown by league was really interesting to me. There were five venues each in the WNBA, NHL and MLB, 10 in the NFL and 16 in the NBA. Some of those venues are shared by teams. So if you're adding along at home, that's why that doesn't add up to 39. 
There was some controversy with those venues along the way. It's politics, so of course there would be. Election authorities needed to approve each venue, and and some local governments decided not to use the sports facilities, like in Miami-Dade County, which used a smaller space in a nearby museum instead of the Miami Heat's American Airlines Arena. The Miami Herald reported later that Mayor Carlos Jimenez, a Republican who is now running for Congress, put a stop to the use of the arena. In Milwaukee, the Bucks Pfizer Forum and the Brewers Miller Park were going to be early voting locations, but the city's election commission dropped those plans because of a timing issue. Early voting sites were supposed to be designated by June, and the sports facilities weren't announced until August. The commission didn't want to risk any legal challenges to the votes that would be cast at those venues, so no voting was held there. Some of the venues where people are voting today include the Green Bay Packers Lambeau Field, the Baltimore Orioles Camden Yards, the Anaheim Ducks Honda Center, the Washington Mystics Entertainment and Sports Arena, and the San Antonio Spurs AT&T Center. One of the venues that offered early voting was Fenway Park, home, of course, to the Boston Red Sox. Nathaniel, our writer, went out to Fenway on the first day of early voting to check out how it worked and to see the crowds. Well, the crowds were huge. On the first day of early voting, the line to get in just about wrapped around the entire park, which is a pretty a pretty long pretty long line. Once they made it inside gate A, voters were checked in with a poll worker to confirm that they were registered in Boston, though they could be from anywhere in the city. They didn't have to be live directly around Fenway. Then voters walked up a ramp to the third base concourse right below sections 29 through 31 of the grandstand. And they checked in again to get the ballot that matched the races they were eligible to vote in. Voting booths were arranged in front of a mural of Ted Williams and a bar that normally serves Sam Adams beer. The drop-off box was in front of a soft-serve ice cream concession stand. Once they were done, voters got stickers that said, I voted at Fenway Park. And they could walk up into the grandstand to take pictures of the field. It was very cool to see this thing come to fruition that was born of a desire for sports leagues to actually help people and, you know, effect real change. People got to vote who may not have been able to vote elsewhere or who may have been worried about voting in a, you know, small, poorly ventilated space during a pandemic. It would also just be, I think, extremely cool to get to vote at your favorite team's venue, especially at a time when you can't necessarily go watch your team play. Not that the Red Sox would have been playing this October anyway. Burn. <laughs> but I was very heartened to see that work out for so many teams. Um, would you vote? Would you guys vote at your you know favorite team's venue if you could have? I mean, not my teams, uh, just because I don't want to be reminded of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to schlep out to Queens. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I would vote at Yankee Stadium. Though. I would actually, I, it's not my favorite team, but I would vote at, at Dodger Stadium. I mean, that's where I go for my COVID test. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a one-stop shop, really. Yeah, there is a lot of politics involved also because, you know, these places generally are in cities. You know, I, I think actually Lambo's interesting because that's, you know, a fairly, uh, Green Bay is a fairly red part of that state. Um, but so it's not, but cities generally largely vote democratic so i so i do think that that's why you did see like everything else that goes on with this election some pushback from from certain sides uh over the decision to open some of these places i just want to know can you do lambo leaks <laughs> after voting i i don't that's a good question they were voting in the tailgate building not like on the field um so i don't know if they let, yeah oh, what a i'm not sure if they let people on or not there um the the miami arena was interesting because part of it was i think my assumption when i heard that was that um oh they didn't want you know more more people to be able to vote there but there was some talk coming from the mayor's office that was like you know they have the heat has a huge banner outside of the arena that says black lives matter we didn't want we we thought it was the the arena itself had become politicized which i thought was interesting i don't know if that carries water or not but it, it was an interesting argument anyway and i thought the 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 situation in milwaukee was sort of sad like you're trying to make sure that nobody's nobody who votes at your you know at miller field you wanted to make sure that none of those ballots were thrown out after the fact which like that just sucks that that's something we have to worry about but i guess i i understood 
why they did. Anyway, um, head to 538.com to read Nathaniel's accounting of Fenway Park voting, see a ton of pictures from the stadium, which were very fun to see. And you can look through a listing of all 39 venues that hosted voting during this election season. Well, and Sarah, one more thing, you know, it's your birthday today. (laughs) And so uh, we did not want to let this moment pass. So uh, yeah, we, we decided, you know, since you're, you're so special to us, we wanted to honor you with something special. Uh, and in fact, actually a couple special things because we weren't sure if one was going to actually work. Uh, so, uh, here, here's the first one. It's a very special guest appearance. Okay. Oh boy. Oh dear God. <laughs> hey, Sarah, it's Dick Bramer with the Minnesota <laughs> Twins. Emily, Santul, Maya, Chad, And Neil all wanted me to wish you a very happy birthday, and I'm more than happy to do that. They tell me that you are a devout Twins fan, and your greatest memory was the 1991 World Series. And I know you're (laughs) like me, and you're hoping that maybe in 2021 the Twins can get back to the World Series. It's been a long time since 1991. Well, the Twins should be pretty good next year. And my hope is that not only will the Twins have another good year in 2021, but that the health and safety protocols that we're practicing now and will continue to practice will allow I'm fans enjoying to get him talking about COVID. Field. And then within that, nothing says birthday like COVID. If you come to Target Field next year, you'll uh, make the effort to look me up. It'd be oh. my pleasure to meet you. Have a great birthday, and hopefully, we'll see you at Target Field next summer. Uh, that's amazing. Wow, Dick Bremer looks old. Yeah, I was a little disappointed <laughs> with his appearance. <laughs> But wait, but wait, there's more. (laughs) There's, there's more. Oh my God. Um, okay. (laughs) Hello, Sarah. I want to wish you a happy birthday. Rumor has it you were in Phoenix, Arizona in 2000 (laughs) to watch that amazing bowl game. Thank you for being there. Thank you for your support. Happy birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday from your friends, Emily Santul, Maya, Chad, and Neil. And I hope you have a great day. I hope you voted. And I hope maybe I can run into you at the Iowa State Bowl game this year or next year or another year or some year. Happy birthday. Follow me back on Twitter, Sage. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's hilarious. Sage Rosenfeld's coming at me from Omaha, Nebraska. BT Dunce. Wow. <laughs> but yes, the, the reason why we got two was because we just weren't sure whether Sage would come through for you or not. And he literally waited till the last day. Today was the last day that he was supposed oh to admit it. And so mid-show, it texted saying that, that he had done his. Dick Bramer was on it. I mean, he, wow. we booked him yesterday. Oh my God. <laughs> Cause we were afraid because, uh, it had been all weekend and Sage did not respond. Uh, and so, wow. <laughs> he came he through had though, so. so many requests. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, you know, it. he's busy. the Tom Brady of the preseason. Did you know that? I, you know, I did know that. Wow. Sarah. You guys, that is incredible. I'm like, oh, teary. That's amazing. <laughs> Dick Bremer said he wanted to meet me at Target Field. You guys, that was so cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was really well, nice. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank happy you. Birthday. <laughs> All right. That will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Phoebe Fox, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>